I think what we want people out there to know is there is no sustainable fashion brand. No one really knows what that would even look like. Everyone is trying to make incremental improvements and a lot of brands are doing a great job, but there isn't like a guidebook of the things that are going to help the planet and it is guaranteed that this will happen. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we are your hosts, Emma and Mary Kingsley, the mother-daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Good Dirt Podcast. Good morning, Mom. How are you doing today? Oh, I've been really enjoying the sunshine. We've had a lot of sunshine lately, and its I won't say it's exactly warm, but it's getting there. So. <laughs> I won't say it's exactly <laughs> warm. It's been so, so cold. I know. Again. Yes. But, you know, the sunshine's good, just feeling it on my face. And sometimes when I'm on my walk and I'm way out in the meadow and I can take off a sweater and have a few minutes of bare arms mm -hmm. and it feels so good. Yes. I will say, too, that, you know, March is daffodil time and... Usually you start to see daffodils sort of uncomfortably early in like January and stuff, but they've just really exploded the past few days. And that makes me really happy, like daffodils at the right time. <laughs> so I don't know what that is, if I just was ignoring them earlier or if they really are just coming up at the right time, but that makes me really happy. No, I agree. And along those lines, Emma, as you know, you just had a birthday a few days ago. And I did. <laughs> so... I had this memory of the day you were born in March. And when we brought you home from the hospital, the yard was full of daffodils. They had just bloomed. So I know that around your birthday, it's a, a, the appropriate time for the daffodils to come out. And you're right. Oh, it yeah. does give you a good feeling like, yeah, okay, it's time. It's not just like global warming, blooming daffodils at the end of January or whatever. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is time. And they have really, really exploded. And there's this theory that when the daffodils are blooming, it's time to plant your flax. So I did plant my flax over the weekend because the daffodils were just going strong. So exciting. Yeah. I also related to things that are that bloom around my birthday. I never really clocked this, but I did get a text a few days before my birthday from my friend Anna. And she said, I noticed that the Bradford pears are blooming. So your birthday must be soon. And I was like, oh gosh, really? Which they're so beautiful, but you know, they have that horrible smell. And then um, <laughs> if any of you listening follow Kyle Liebarger, who we had from Native Plant Project, he did a reel really recently about the Bradford pears and how, how invasive they are and just how we went a little Bradford pear crazy, you know, a few couple decades ago. 
and they're really not supposed to be there. So I have mixed feelings about that one. But I thought that was a sweet text that the Bradford Pears signal my birthday for my friend. You know who else talked about the Bradford Pears on the podcast was Eliza Greenman. She really addresses the Bradford Pears as an invasive species, and she really has a very interesting angle on it. Two good episodes you really need to go back and listen to if you haven't. Yes. So there's that. And then, oh, the other thing you said about the daffodils blooming and being all sunshiny, I also got a tarot deck for myself for my birthday. And it's so great. I love it. It's really pretty. It's called the Radiant Deck and it's for creativity. And I've pulled twice in the past three days, the first day being on my birthday, the Sun Tarot card, which is all about joy and being sunshiny. So that is just so fun. So that's how I am. I'm feeling lots of sunshiny. I I pulled it twice. Isn't that crazy? Like really shuffling them up each time. So that is wonderful. That's just so great. (laughs) Well, all of this sort of goes into also a new fun beginning for us, which is springtime in the Almanac, which is our online membership community. We're so excited to announce that spring enrollment for the Almanac is now open. The Almanac is our online membership community. And you may have noticed that the past few weeks we've been talking about the slow living challenge, which has since ended. But the Almanac is like a place for the slow living challenge to happen all year in community. And we have a lot of things really exciting upcoming for this season. We are excited to elevate each of our members to bring their skills forward and we can share with each other slow living skills. Every month has a different workshop and focus. We have book clubs. We have a gardening forum if you're interested in gardening. And it's honestly just a lovely place to meet people and build community. I have made some wonderful friends through the Almanac. You know who you are. And we'd love to have you as well. So this year, we are experimenting with closing the doors to enrollment. We're just going to see how it goes. We, we're looking forward to building a really cohesive community this year. And we think that, you know, having everyone start together will really help facilitate that. So come join us. If you're interested in learning more, go to the link in the show notes, or you can go to ladyfarmer.com, click on the community tab, and then the almanac, you'll find it there. So just to pivot a little bit into today's guest, mom, do you want to introduce today's guest? Yes. So Elizabeth de Gramont is the chief brand officer and head of impact at Frank and Oak which is an apparel brand founded in Montreal in 2012, offering clothing and accessories for men and women, and is now a brand leader in sustainable fashion and the use of innovative fabrics from nature. By adopting circularity and innovation as their design philosophy and investing in low-energy manufacturing processes and fabrics and reducing waste in landfills, they strive to help shape a better, more mindful world where human progress is in harmony with the planet's well-being. Frank and Oak is a certified B Corps company, and they recently announced their 100% responsible campaign, which means that as of February 2023, all of their products either contain low-impact, cruelty-free, organic, biodegradable, or recycled fibers, or are manufactured using industry-leading technologies and processes. There's much more to this 100% responsible campaign, and you will hear about that in today's episode. 
At Lady Farmer, we aim to elevate those seeking solutions to the vast environmental and human rights problems in the fashion industry. So we're really excited to be speaking to Elizabeth today about Franken Oaks' leading innovations in responsible fashion. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Elizabeth de Gramont of Franken Oak. So my name is Elizabeth DeGrammel, and I am the chief brand officer for Franken Oak, which is a sustainable fashion brand based in Quebec in Montreal. But I'm also the chief brand officer for Unified Commerce Group, which is the parent company of Franken Oak. So personally for me, I have a circuitous background to, to coming into this role. My first job ever was for working for fashion magazines. And actually, my first job ever was working for Vogue China when Vogue launched in China in 2005, so when I just graduated college. And the reason is that I always loved fashion, but I always had, I studied Chinese in college. I wanted to figure out a way to go use my Chinese that I had studied. And so I ended up actually living in China for more than 15 years. Yeah, <laughs> which is, I would say I have the different, like different perspectives of the U.S. consumer, Chinese consumer, and then also a little bit about the kind of supply chain and what the factories look like and things like that. But I really started my career more in PR marketing side than I spent about 10, 12 years working in brand strategy and consumer research. And what that meant a lot for me, especially my early career, was really traveling around mostly China and other parts of Asia, speaking to consumers about how they use their products. And I was doing projects for big brands like L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, Beauty Cosmetics, but also did Tylenol, baby infant formula, pet food, like whole range of products. I spent really my early career was about talking to consumers and customers from luxury handbag buyers to people who are just buying like chocolate at the convenience store and trying to understand why and what do they like in terms of brand, in terms of product, and also just how cultural differences play into that. When you have big American brands trying to sell to Chinese people or later on Chinese brands and marketers trying to understand U.S. consumers. So my passion is really about what gets people interested in wanting to buy something, wanting to consume something, wanting to change their behavior or their habits. And then just personally, I've always I've always really liked fashion and apparel. It's something I've just always been very interested in. So basically, after that consumer research part, the fashion part, I went out and consulted on my own for a while. And I met up with a former client of mine who used to run Macy's China, which had a big partnership with Alibaba, which runs the biggest e-commerce platform in China, like the Amazon of China. And so we got to talking and we had both left our jobs. And I think started talking a lot about there are so many really cool brands in North America in particular right now. And this was 2018, 2019 that are much more purpose-driven, talking about whether it's sustainability, inclusivity, and speaking to a very strong, engaged community and audience. And But they're still so small, and we can see there's demand for them globally. So in the Asian market, there's a clear demand for this type of product, this type of brand positioning. And so how do we really give them tools to scale on a bigger level, break out from their local community where they were, and try to help them get exposed to new audiences. 
So all of this, and then also give them some of the tools and capabilities that they'll need to thrive in a more scaled retail environment in terms of merchandising skills, supply chain skills, and branching out from D to C into maybe trying to open up new business lines like opening stores and wholesale. We started UCG. I joined our CEO, Dustin, when he founded UCG in right before the pandemic. And in 2020, we had the opportunity to acquire our first brand, which was Frank and Oak. And so that is how I came to start working with Frank and Oak. Frank and Oak is a brand that's been, that was founded in Montreal in 2012. So it's actually a brand that has about 10 years history. For Canadians, it's a, I would say, pretty well-known brand. It has pretty high awareness in Canada, especially in the big cities, Quebec and Toronto, Vancouver. And it's a brand that always really started with this idea of kind of community and collaborating with local artists and designers and the cool kids, the cool kids in the neighborhood. And around 2017, Frank and Oak became very, the essentially, I think the head designer, product designer at the time had her first child and she and the CEO just became very aware of, much more aware of the environmental impact of the fashion industry and thinking about like the sort of turning point for a lot of people when you have kids to just think, wait a minute, what are we doing here? What are we leaving behind in terms of the products that we make? And so that is Frank and Oak took a much more conscious, strong turn towards thinking about what are the sustainable fabrics and materials that we should be using that can replace some of the nasty stuff that we use in the fashion industry, like virgin polyester, the, all of the things that we could the go things. into. <laughs> everything. Um, <laughs> exactly, everything. And so when UCG came in 2020, it was like height of the pandemic, obviously huge disruption to the industry as a whole. And we came in really wanting to take this great brand that had already had a really nice head start in terms of thinking about sustainable fabrications and materials and cultivating an audience for him that was important and bringing this brand and the story to a bigger audience. Can you talk a little bit about presently what your work looks like with them? So I work with the the product design team and sourcing team to really understand what is it that we are doing? Because I think a lot of the time the product designers have a great point of view and expertise in terms of looking for new innovative materials, thinking of new ways to construct garments that will make them easier to recycle, for example, at the end of life, but they're not showing off and telling everybody about it so much. My role is to really under make sure that we understand as an organization what we're doing and then and then do a little bit of uh, shouting from the rooftops to, to share some of the interesting initiatives that we have in terms of sustainability. Something that we talk about a lot on this podcast, actually, is how once things scale, that's when they become unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And so as someone whose specific job is looking for how to help sustainable brands scale and the scalability of that, what are some of your thoughts on that? And what, how, what have you seen that works really well? Where have you seen it when it crosses into unsustainable? What's that relationship with scalability and sustainability? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's so interesting because it's like both sides of the coin. So it's on one hand, brands that start with a mission of, I think you're talking about supply chain, like local production and sourcing fabric from the place that they know that's traceable. And so they have one product line. So it's very easy for them to control what they're doing. And then 
scale means you probably have to sell more things. So then it starts confusing people. It starts confusing your supply chain and you say, oh, actually, I do need to produce some things offshore because that doesn't necessarily exist onshore, for example. But in other ways, and I think this is relevant for us, we've always been a brand. We weren't a brand that ever, I guess maybe at the very beginning, we started like doing men's shirts, but we always wanted to be a lifestyle brand which is really providing the best basics for kind of a modern conscious consumer's robe. So we do, people do need underwear and shorts and t-shirts and blouses and a coat. They're not just buying one product from us. And so I think for us where scale is actually important to be more sustainable is that it gives us a lot more negotiating power with our suppliers or factories or the ability to, to say to the factory, actually, we really do want you to get the certification because even if you say that you are whatever it is, like you are treating all your wastewater in a certain way, we can believe you (laughs) or, but since we give you this much business, we would like you to provide this type of documentation that helps us feel more comfortable and establishes more transparency. And so I think that it's, it is a, again, like both sides, you could say, um, scale means that you're producing more stuff. But I think the way that we see it is that we're hoping to take market share away from big fast fashion players who are producing lots of stuff without without thinking at all about anything. Whereas we're saying to factories, actually, we can support, we can be a big account for you. We can give you a lot of business. And then we have the ability to say, okay, and if we are giving you more business, then can you, can you do this for us? Can you make sure, can you implement these reforms? So I think where we see scale is because we're not positioned as just producing like organic cotton underwear and that's it. We do want to provide a full wardrobe solution for our customers. So we really want to just replace those big mainstream brands that are not doing anything so that we have more leverage essentially. Yeah, I guess it's like scale, scaling impact also. Yeah, as you scale. Yeah, exactly. I think it's scaling impact and it's also, I think we have a lot of unique materials that we use, unique fabrics that we use. And like one of them is called seawool. It's actually a fiber that's made from recycled polyester from PET bottles and also recycled oyster shells that have been discarded from the food industry. And this is not like a type of trash that people think about that often. But actually, there is a ton of discarded oyster shells. They get dumped into the ocean, they wash up, they create a lot of pollution and bacteria and smell. And so we work with a supplier that makes this fabric that called like the ocean garbage fabric, <laughs> where they're taking the plastic bottles and the oyster shells and creating this really interesting fiber. But if you Google seawool right now, it's a trademarked fiber, it's available to other people. But very few brands have figured out how to actually make this a really interesting, beautiful fabric that you want to wear. Mm. And I think when we first started, when UCG first came into Frank and Oak during the pandemic, they had seawool. It was really cool. So we all bought it as Christmas gifts for all of our family members. Be like, this is so cool. Oystershell shell sweater. And then you notice people are like, I think it's getting dinner scratching. <laughs> a little bit itchy. Oh gosh. And so we really spent a lot of time pushing the product development team to make it into something that is much more wearable, attractive, has a really unique texture. And this year it was one of our best sellers by far during during the holiday season. And um 
if, and again, like if you Google out there, there's one or two other brands doing it, but it's not something that it is something that requires work to figure out how to use some of these materials in an interesting way. And I would say that's what Frank and Oak does in a really does really well is how do we take some of these more innovative materials that are going to be much better than virgin polyester or conventional cotton and make them into a really beautiful desirable product and then encourage factories and suppliers to learn how to use it better so that we don't need to be the only ones, but we do want to be pioneers and inspiring new ways of constructing sustainable garments. That's awesome. I love That's that idea. That's so interesting. And I have so many questions. One thing, one thing I'm just curious about is mm-hmm. when you approach these manufacturers and you say, we can give you a lot of business if you will demonstrate to us that your, your practices are up to our standards. Do you have them just say, ooh, no, thanks. We can't do that. Bye. Do you have that? Does that ever happen? Well, I would say because we're a brand with quite a long history, we, and we know our suppliers really pretty well. So I would say what we've done is more, it's more like trimmed down rather than saying we're going to all these new people. And we do obviously act, we're always actively trying to solve for new product categories or something that'll be higher quality, has an even better standard than the other one. However, I think that the, what we've done a lot in the last two, three years is looked at all of our suppliers and done the, just more formalized saying, okay, you guys told us that you do it this way but do you have a certification? And if you don't, then, oh, you know, where you're going to be probably more easy to replace than another. So I think it's, it's really more about trimming down and having fewer suppliers that we know better, that we have stronger relationships with. One, because it's, I think like anyone who's ever worked in a business where they have a client, it's better to have fewer, better clients that give you more business than having to deal with lots of people. So for them, it should be better. And then for us, then we have a stronger relationship, closer understanding. And then we do have a colleague in China. We do produce in China, not everything, but a lot of our production is in China. But we do have a colleague in China who works very closely and speaks to these factories regularly, goes and visits them and really understands the local context of how they're operating. Because we're a small brand, we still have kind of the luxury to have these personal connections, I would say. In terms of your sustainable initiatives, mm-hmm. you talked about the sea wool. That's very interesting, mm-hmm. but I know you've got several things going on. So mm-hmm. for instance, can you tell us about the 100% responsible product collection? Yeah, sure. Very proud to announce that from Q1 of this year, from essentially May 1st, 2023, all of our products that we are launching and that we have available to sell either contain low impact, cruelty-free organic, biodegradable, or recycled fibers. So the way that we define that is that they all have an L of either they are made in a process or kind of facility that has what we consider superior responsible methods. Again, the the word sustainable, I think we could also talk about that for a long time. It's I don't want to overuse it too much, but either made with a process or a factory that has a superior way of doing things. So one example would be our denim. So all of our denim collection uses some elements of recycled and salvaged cotton and fabrics, but because just to maintain the quality of the garment, it's not always easy to use 100% recycled cotton for your denim jeans. But we do work with a facility that has made some really interesting improvements in how denim is produced. So denim is usually one of the worst things that you can actually have in your closet because of 
the dyeing process, the the way that they make it look worn, they sandblast it, which is terrible for the environment. They use a ton of water, a ton of toxic chemicals. So we're working with a factory in Dubai that has really interesting hydro-less processes. So they're doing a lot of the treatment of the fabric without any water at all. And they're wow. reusing their wastewater. And same thing with instead of using sandblasting to distress the fabric to make it look have that kind of like cool worn denim look, they use a laser technology. So they're not using that really, again, like water and pollutant intensive. And so that is one example of a responsible product. And then all of the other products essentially have usually 50% or more of the fabrication is made with a material that we basically call like a grade A or B fabric. So what we talked about, C-cell is another interesting innovation that we work with, which is a blend of organic cotton and a fiber that's made from seaweed, regenerative oh, wow. seaweed. So it's it's really interesting. It's really soft, really nice on the skin and completely biodegradable. Very cool. Very yeah. exciting. So you have mentioned in our conversation so far two really cool Product innovations. And mm-hmm. I wanted you to have the chance to tell about any more if there are any more. Yes, for sure. I think just some of the ones that we're really most proud of are the fabrics and kind of materials that we're using that are not yet really mainstream in the fashion industry, but that are certainly. I would say superior to kind of conventional fabrics that are being used in the fashion industry. I mentioned seawool, which is a fiber that's made with from kind of ocean waste, so recycled plastic bottles and oyster shell waste that's discarded from the food industry. That's spun together to make a really interesting. We use it in sweaters for men and women. Makes a really interesting, cool fiber. Looks really great. Feels really great. And so that is one. Another is sea cell, which I also mentioned, which is a blend of organic cotton and fiber cellulose from seaweed and algae. And this is a really great kind of also light sweater fabric also is completely biodegradable at the end of its life. So those are the two I mentioned, but I think there's two others that we're really proud of among other things. One is Kapok. So Kapok is actually a, it's a fiber that looks like cotton, but it's grown on a pod on a tree, usually in the rainforest. And it it uses basically 40% less water than cotton would to grow because it grows on a tree and in very heavy rain areas. And so Kipok is not something, it's something that we're trying to the percentage of, but we usually blend it with organic cotton in order to get the best result in terms of the garment. It's something that actually in China and in Asia has been used for a long time to make fabrics and fibers, but has never really been seen in the West. And so last year and this year, we just launched again for spring season, a trench coat that is made out of Kapok. And that's really, I think we're some of the only ones in only brands in North America that is really working with this fiber which again, conserves water and is lighter and just much more breathable than a lot of conventional fabric. And then another one that we're also really proud of, which I think we're very unique in is Yakul. Cashmere, the cashmere industry, I think you guys probably know, has become huge. It used to be that cashmere was a super luxury item. Now you can get this $50, $90 a cashmere sweater. And one of the problems with the cashmere industry is that it's led to huge industrial overgrazing by the by the goats that of the cashmere in Mongolia and other kind of very areas at risk of desertification. 
Kashmir is something that has led to a lot of desertification problems, especially in Central Asia, whereas yak is a really interesting animal, actually, because yak, when they eat the grass, when they graze, they don't actually pull it out from the roots the way that goats and sheep do. One, it's better for desertification. Two, they shed their wool naturally and their hair is very long. So you can actually brush out the fibers rather than having to shave that to get the, the wool from their coat. And so we've partnered with a supplier that is really interesting, has been doing traceable yak wool for about 15, 16 years. So they work directly with the Tibetan herding communities in Tibet and southwestern China. And they work with them to, to get the yak wool to process it and to deliver it to brands like ours. But it's a fully traceable supply chain. So we really know where it's coming from. And we also donate a portion of the proceeds back to those communities so they can replant to encourage the, the replanting and regeneration of those grasslands. Um, and I think, again, within Western brands, I think in Asia, there are brands that do use yak wool more because it's they're closer to the local source. But in North America, we're one of the only brands who that are really using yak wool, especially at our sweaters are like 50% yak wool, 50% merino wool. And that is a very high content. It's a very luxury product, but at a fairly reasonable price point. That's so cool. I had no idea about that. No, I, that's so interesting about the goats being a problem for desertification in these areas. I wasn't aware of that. So, wow, okay. you've really taught me something. And correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it's kind of like a buffalo type Isn't related it? animal. Okay. Because I think people think, oh, well, you know, there's alpaca and llama and all these wool animals. But until I ran into you guys, <laughs> I never heard of yak wool. So actually, what's interesting about what you just said is that we've had, obviously, we have a lot of conversations with different media platforms and kind of sustainability experts and ratings engines that rate how sustainability you are, uh, sustainable you are. And I, uh, we were having a conversation with someone and they rated us on their website as using exotic animal fur. And I was like, what do you mean exotic animal fur? And they were like, yeah, oh. it's an exotic animal. And I was like, but... It's not like we're, it's not like a crocodile. It's not like it's an endangered species that is being mm. killed for us. So I think yeah. the, what's interesting is like it, all this definition of what is sustainable, what is not sustainable, what is responsible, mm -hmm. what is not, is that the definitions are really changing. And according to who you ask. Yeah, who you ask. <laughs> and also just what is the knowledge base? Like, in yeah. The, yes. I mean, yak are mostly in Asia. Like they're in the Himalayas, they're in Tibet, but there are communities that, their whole life is centered around the yak, whether it's collecting the wool or using them as domesticated animals or eating yak milk, drinking yak milk and yak butter mm -hmm. and yak cheese. And so it's it's just interesting because really what you know in your, com in your culture and in yeah. your country really influences how you see these things as well. Exotic according to who? Yeah. <laughs> no, and, <exactly>. Well, <laughs> that just speaks to what you're saying is people get an idea in their head and want to jump to conclusions instead of what's a yak? That mm -hmm. must, I haven't heard of it. That must be exotic. That must be mean mm -hmm. that they're abusing animals. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're gonna have to try for yourself. 
Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. What has been your experience of sustainable fashion and your own evolution? And what is it like to like really work boots on the ground on, on this stuff every day with these big brands that do have this access and like leverage? Because a lot of the people that we talk to and that we're in contact with, we do work with those like tiny brands that are just trying, you know, mm-hmm. it's a different world and there's mm-hmm. not like one's good and one's bad, but I'm interested in your perspective personally. Yeah, for sure. So I think for me personally, I think there's a couple effective. So I think one, just over the last 20 years, I've spent a lot of time traveling in different cultures and like seeing consumers of the same brand in different places. So someone who loves Nike in China, someone who loves Nike in Thailand, someone who loves Nike in California, someone who loves Nike in Ohio, they all love the same brand, but for kind of different reasons and different culture contexts. And they have different, mm. it's like some things are consistent, some things are different. And so I think for me, just having lived abroad and spent so much time being and immersing with people in different cultures, it's just made me see, I think, more the consumer culture in the U.S., which is, it's just very normal for people. There's something that this expectation of in the U.S., everything has to be like perfect and beautiful and like plastic wrapped and clean, whereas in a lot of other places, People know that an apple that is misshapen probably tastes a lot better. And like, for example, a chicken in China is usually like skinny and yellow and weird looking, but makes the best chicken soup or chicken broth that you're ever going to taste. And it tastes nothing like something that you would get here, unless, of course, you're probably speaking to an individual farmer who has breeds their own chickens. Whereas in the U.S., you come to the supermarket, these giant chicken breasts that are the size of, size of my head wrapped in plastic and taste like rubber and are really cheap. <laughs> and it makes you wonder, yeah. like, how have we lost a connection to like where stuff actually comes from? And isn't it nicer to have things that taste better and that you get real pleasure and enjoyment of even if there's a smaller quantity? Mm. And so I would say just living in Asia for a long time has given me that perspective. And so it comes back to to fashion as well. And especially during the pandemic, during when the kind of height of the COVID lockdown, just personally, I ended up, I had been traveling to visit my parents in California 
and I came with my two kids and I was pregnant and two suitcases and my husband. And we were just planning to stay for a few weeks and it, I ended up having a baby and staying for seven months. <laughs> and so I lived out of a suitcase, five people, two suitcases for seven months and, and also went from being pregnant to not pregnant. So the clothes that I brought were not like necessarily that useful. And but it really gave me as someone who loves fashion. I love going on Instagram. I love researching brands. I love trying on clothes. It's just I'm like, wait a minute, what do I actually need? And then also seeing the stuff that, you know, is not great quality. Like I had bought a lot of sort of fast fashion brand clothes for my children because they grow so fast and they're playing outside and climbing trees and stuff. And within three weeks, even their pajamas are falling apart mm. and because they're wearing the same thing every day because we didn't have as much stuff. So you realize that's when you're like, one, I can live with so much less, but two, I want the stuff that I'm living with, whether it's clothes or food to just be so much more enjoyable and useful and lasting. And so I think for me, just the past couple of years, that's what's given me real perspective and how I then bring it into my work. I think it's it's also exciting to create new product and be creative and work with designers and have marketing campaigns. And I'm not going to say I don't love the challenge of business and selling things and creating new things, but it makes you think a lot more about how do you be purposeful and intentional with what you're creating and also be honest with your consumers. And it's, it's important to acknowledge that it is fun to buy clothes and dress up because you're not going to you're not going to convert people by telling them not to buy anything new ever a lot of mm -hmm. time i would say the mass population right yeah so i think what's important is to really think about like how are we crafting things that are really high quality accessible people love and enjoy a lot of to plug frank and oak but like their frank and oak sweaters every time i put them on i'm like oh my god it just feels so good and i think that's what we want to do is create more products that people really enjoy and they just want to keep them for a long time and to make them with processes that are going to be better and less harmful rather than just something you want to throw away and just wear it for fun once or twice. That's awesome. And what a cool experience to yeah. have to live out of two suitcases <laughs> and have kids and everything. Oh my gosh, that's so, that But what a good you. story. What a testimonial for experiencing that. And guess what? You had a whole lot less laundry to do, right? <laughs> Yeah, or more because they go through it. <laughs> yeah, do yeah. it more often, <laughs> depending on how you're looking at Small, it. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> I have a funny story about the chicken thing. Those big fat chickens you get in the supermarket, many of them were born in the United States, but shipped to China mm -hmm. for processing and then shipped back to really? put on the shelf. So it's pretty wild. <laughs> that is crazy. It's scary. That makes me think of is, and I guess you asked about past experiences and working with big companies. And I think one of the things working with big multinational companies that have power to sell products around the world and build their brand with customers around the world, they're, I guess the fundamental issue is like a lot of them want to n now have programs in place. And it, this is the conversation about scale that we were having. A lot of big companies have programs in place because they have activist investors or they're publicly listed companies. They have to do ESG reporting now. They have programs in place to really do things that are impactful. So whether it's pressuring manufacturers to make sure that they're more energy efficient, 
impact and emitting less carbon, for example. But at the same time, the fundamental culture is not, that is very hard to ingrain into a culture when you have 50,000 employees or 100,000 employees who have been trained Mm -hmm. to sell things in a certain way. And so I think what's my personal experience and revelation more from the business side is how do we embed a culture of, yes, profitability is important because that's what allows us to pay our suppliers and pay our people and give people bonuses and make sure that everyone is being uplifted together. But also think about the impact that we're having from the beginning and more ingrained in company culture. In addition to that, to your point about chicken, I used to work with Tyson Chicken in China when they were, they like launched, they they were sending a lot of chicken parts to China and then they were like, oh, why don't we sell Tyson branded chicken to Chinese consumers as well? And, you know, what's interesting is in the U.S., I would say Tyson Chicken probably isn't seen as like a premium luxury chicken, (laughs) but in China, they were wrapping things in plastic like the American way. And writing on the label, no, no hormones and like pre-cut chicken. And what's interesting is you also see how that kind of American style plastic wrapped, super clean and perfect looking things does have its appeal. So then customers are like, oh, this is like a very luxury chicken with the premium chicken because, and, and so it's interesting because you can actually have the same product, but when it's position in a different way, it makes people think, oh, maybe I need this actually when... Wow. It's completely cultural. Yeah. yeah it's completely cultural, but it's also spreading <laughs> bad habits. Yeah. That's um, really um, interesting, Elizabeth. I'm, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. I'm sorry. It's a bit off topic. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's really... We went from clothes to chicken. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll go back to clothes <laughs> but, now. Go back to clothes now. But it's very related. You're talking about marketing and people's idea of what's luxury and what's nice and consumer perception and, of course, greenwashing. So going back to Frank and Oak here, what products do you all want to be most recognized for? Yeah. So outerwear sweaters. And then, of course, we just have a great assortment of basic tops and pants and denim. So denim, I mentioned 100% of our collection of denim has uses recycled fibers. We also design our denim for circularity. So we are working actively in increasing the making sure that it's majority cotton or blend of fabrics that can be easily recycled. So we, we use cottonized hemp, which is like hemp, which I think you guys know also uses a lot less water. And we've also eliminated the rivets, the little metal pieces in your denim. Mm-hmm. For the last couple of years, I think since 2018 or 19, we've completely eliminated those from the the construction of the denim. So we don't have any metal pieces. And the reason for that is that enables it to be more easily recycled at the end of its life. Denim is something where, again, we're really trying to push kind of boundaries in terms of not just the fabric that we use, but actually designing the product in a way that can be easily deconstructed. The zipper tape can be removed more easily. There's no metal pieces that are going to screw up your recycling mechanisms so that they can be more easily recycled in the future. Yeah, that's really interesting because, yeah, maybe there are some things that could be recycled or reused, but it's going to take an extremely intentional Mm -hmm. user to cut out the things and practically no one's going to do that. But when you create a product around that idea, the, the end of life thing, not only does that help the consumer to accomplish that, but also spreads the idea. People even thinking about end of life, which is something that's just, 
I think just now beginning to be out there, frankly, in, yeah. in people's minds. Exactly. And I think one of the, so one of the things we're doing with our 100% responsible announcement that we're making this month is we're publishing an updated progress report on our website. So that it's giving our customers a more, just a little bit more inside, inside baseball on how we think about fabrics that we choose and how we look at our collection. And I don't know if everyone is going to be interested in it, but it really is like, here are some different things that we're doing. So one is from a fabric standpoint, we classify our fabrics and materials in different grades, grade A and B being the most sustainable, grade D being we still use it because we have no choice at the moment, like a little bit of spandex just for your elastic Mm -hmm. band and your underwear, and grade E being like, don't use it at all. So that's one aspect. But the other aspect is we are trying to talk to our consumers more about this idea of circularity and product end of life. And so another thing that we include in there is that we are right now, our goal is to keep our percentage of multi-fiber fabrics. So basically like one garment, either it's, if it's hundred percent cotton t-shirt, it's a monofiber. So that means there's only one fiber being used that normally should be biodegradable. Usually there's a recycled polyester label that you could rip out, but that could be a biodegradable entirely. Then we have a lot of garments that are bi-fiber, which means maybe it's a mix of sea cell and organic cotton, for example. That usually can be pretty easily recycled. And then about 30% of our products are multi-fiber. It has a little bit of recycled polyester in it, a little bit of organic cotton, a little bit of spandex because we need it for the stretch. And those are things that can be recycled, but are just not going to be as easy to be commercially recycled or recycled in general. What we're trying to actually talk more about is say we are doing our best and trying to pick the fabrics that are the right ones that are produced with the least environmental impact, but also make garments that are simpler where possible so that when they come to the end of the life, they can biodegrade or be commercially recycled. So that's something I think not a lot of people are talking about in the fashion industry that we would love more people to talk about because it also... I think you've said in some of your other podcast episodes that I've listened to, the onus is also in the consumer. Once they buy it, they ha- we have to depend on them to do something with it. We offer take-back programs in our stores. We still need people to be aware of this issue. That's very interesting about how you categorize the, the material, the, the pieces you make according to the materials, like this is one that we don't want to use at all, or these, this is one that we'll use a little bit. I guess what I'm getting to is that the recycled plastic bottles of course we want to get them out of the ocean and do something Mm -hmm. with them that's fabulous but do you also try to inform the consumers about it doesn't stop here you know that there's a microplastic problem Mm -hmm. and anything with with this recycled pet plastic and it should be washed less often or how do you approach that it's obviously a material that we've we have it with us and what we're just going to let it lie there or use it what are y'all thinking about that (laughs) yeah for sure and i think it's you know this also comes to kind of the question of scale right is that we definitely talk to our consumer about it we'll do Mm -hmm. instagram posts or stories we have it on a lot of labels denim we say wash as little as possible in cold water And then certainly we've done communications kind of initiatives where we talk about microplastics and ask people to wash them less and not put them in the dryer. But back to our conversation about scale, 
a lot of the big companies, big players like H&M or Nike or Adidas, they have a ton of money to spend on like Google search words, right? And this is actually cut to our, your question about the word sustainable is it's, we don't really want to use the word sustainable all the time because it feels like too much of a blanket statement. However, in order to get some attention, that's a word that people are familiar with. They understand what it means now. And you have big, huge companies who are buying up the search word. So if you Google, I want sustainable jeans, like those ones will come to the top because they have more money to spend on marketing. And for us, absolutely. I think it's it's something that we think a lot about and we do Instagram and email communications on it to our subscriber list. But what we need to do really, I think, is band together with other brands and other mm -hmm. interested parties and really have more of an education campaign for customers. Of course, we can put on the labels, but not everyone reads the label when right. before they wash their clothes. And also you have on your website that guppy bag thing. Yeah. So we, I don't know if we have it on our website anymore, but we did mm -hmm. have it at one point. And I think it's more just a function of we just don't sell them on the website now. But yes, we have done some communication in the past. And I think that's a great uh, stopgap solution for now. So one of the things we, we have done, and this doesn't solve the taking, doesn't solve the microplastics issue, but we, from this year, part of our 100% responsible announcement is that we have eliminated virgin polyester from all of our products. So, which, you know, I think is, again, it's, it doesn't solve all the microplastics issues, but it is meaning that we are not using any virgin newly created polyester for our products, even with our coats that are waterproof and weatherproof and really high quality functional. We've had to make some choices there. There's some product, like some socks that we decided not to produce, yeah, for right. example. I think that having start starting there and then just trying to actively reduce the amount that we're using and actively reduce the number of products that are a blend of lots of different types because usually the polyester is not like a brand like ours doesn't have that many products that are just going to be 100 percent polyester because we focus a lot on natural materials etc but we do need a little bit of that of that that synthetic blended with other things in order to avoid for example sweaters pilling too much or things stretching enough and it's what we try to do is keep that percentage down and try to keep that multi-fiber down and we're actively trying to speak to partners that could take back products from consumers and recycle them, not just put them into shred them and put them into dog pillows, which is where a lot of clothing recycling goes, but actually recycle them fiber to fiber so they can be reused again. That's such a good point in what you're saying about the synthetics. Actually, it's at this point in the game, we can't eliminate all the synthetic the synthetics. Unfortunately, people just they're like, they're not going to buy socks that don't stay up. No one's going to buy them. Nobody's going to wear socks that end up crunching around their ankles. And so it's very gray area. And I do think a great place to start is what y'all did is we're not using any virgin polyester. No polyester is being created to go straight into our clothing. In other words, it's already in existence. Going back to you personally, is we it? talk about slow living a lot on this podcast. So we're just curious, mm -hmm. what does slow living mean to you? Yeah, great question. And I think for me, it's really, it's really just like 
enjoying and appreciating what you have. Because I think it's like that we live in a world where there's so much fear of missing out. Oh, material envy and doing this and I won't want to have this. And on Instagram, there's all this fabulous clothes and life and food and all restaurants that I want to go to. And so I think for me, soul living is really about just in, enjoy your day to day and enjoy the challenges that you have and treat yourself from time to time. And don't feel guilty about indulging, but put things in perspective. And I think many people, especially in the US and Canada, has their troubles, but we're very fortunate in a lot of ways. So I think being grateful for that and enjoy the moment, really. I love that. I don't know. Thank you. We've talked about that too much, that slow living, just being like as a response to feeling like you want to buy stuff. Practice that sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) It goes back back to that pandemic experience I told you about, which is, wait a Uh minute. I actually really like wearing this sweatshirt every day if it's a really nice one. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It, yeah. Kind of, it makes it feels good. You don't having that decision made for you already, it's like saves a lot of brain power and energy not having to decide between so many things to wear every day. Oh, 100%. Not having to make all those decisions in the morning. I love it. So, here's a question we ask all of our guests. What does the good dirt mean to you? Yeah, I think for me, what first came to mind when I saw this question is it's really appreciating what nature has to offer to you and not trying to change it too much. Just back to our conversation about chicken. Yeah. It's there are people who are scared to eat the chicken off the bone and who want everything to look perfect and clean and their apple to be shiny red. And I think for me, the good dirt is appreciate what are the things that nature has to offer and don't really try to change it too much and get comfortable with things that maybe are a little bit imperfect or a little bit, even if they're dirty on the surface. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I love it. Well, is there anything else as we're wrapping up? Anything else you want to talk about or what do you most want the listeners to understand about the work that you're doing? I think what we want people out there to know is one, there is no sustainable fashion brand because no one really knows what that would even look like. Everyone is trying to make incremental improvements and a lot of brands are doing a great job. But the solution, there isn't like a guidebook of these are the things that are going to help the planet and it is guaranteed that this will happen. So I think that from our perspective at Frank and Oak, we want our customers to understand that this is a brand that is pushing kind of boundaries in terms of innovating with materials to think about what are ways that we can make the fabrics that we pick for fashion more sustainable. And that has really designed into our culture and our way of creating product, the thought that we have to think about what's gonna happen at the end of the life of this product. We are thinking a lot about circularity and what happens at the end of the life of the product. But in the meantime, we want to create products that are really beautiful, functional, and that you really love wearing every day. And our design team thinks a lot about the sustainability, the material science aspect. Most importantly, they're really thinking about, is there a little extra pocket that we could put somewhere that will help make simplify someone's life? Or will this much softer, how will it make them feel when they wear this garment? Frank and Oak is really about the, our kind of brand positioning. The way that we talk about our brand is about inspiring better living. And that better living means from a sustainability perspective, 
be gentle to the planet perspective, but also feel great, be able to move and go out there and do the things that you want to do and look great doing it as well. So I would say that's what Frank and Oak is about in a nutshell. And we're going to keep making efforts to, to be pioneers in the space of more responsible clothing. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's awesome. And thanks for saying there's no sustainable fashion brand that like cracks open so much. That's Mm -hmm. so important to talk about. It's provocative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it's a claim made by so many Mm -hmm. nowadays and it's something that's sought after by so many. But yeah, that's great. Thank you. And we do. I'll clarify, like we do call ourselves a stay lift. Yeah, you you started this conversation. Yeah, You need, people don't understand. It's very hard. You can't be wishy-washy. People won't understand what you're saying. Right. (laughs) But it's, has anyone perfected sustainability? Certainly not. No. Yeah. Oh, right. Uh, and it, yeah. it, and is sustainability know, even what we want? Because the way things are right now, I don't think we want to sustain this. This is not sustainable. Yeah. <laughs> that is so a good point. it's just what's wanted. What, yeah. We want to do better. Yeah. We want to yeah. do better. Yeah. So thank you for your time today. Yeah. This Most interesting so conversation. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. It's so lovely to, to talk to you guys. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in the link in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer with original music composed and performed by John Kingsley. Our technical partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Alex Brower and Jose Miguel Baez. Coordinated by Gabriela Montequim. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt.